Exodus chapter 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pihahirath, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And of the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people have fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, What is this we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped at the sea by Pihahirath in front of Baal-Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us, bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness." And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots, and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was a cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon the horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, 
all of the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one had remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power of the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Well, a couple of months ago, back in January, Matt and I had the privilege of going to a very small Christian conference. There were like 50 or 60 different church leaders from around the U.S. and and Canada there. And and because it was small, it was really kind of intimate and nice. You know, like you weren't one of 5,000. You were, you know, one of 50 or 60. You actually got to know people and meet people. And it allowed the people who were hosting the conference to do some things that were sort of unique. And so, in one of the afternoons, they said, all right, we're going to do a ministry of prayer. And the pastor who was up at the front kind of explained what he meant by that. He said, okay, so what we're going to do is we're going to invite you guys to come forward, anybody who wants prayer for anything, and you can tell us what it is that you want us to pray for. And we're going to lay hands on you as long as you're cool with that. And then we're going to pray for you. But we're not just going to do that. We're also going to give the Spirit the opportunity to, to maybe prompt something in us as we pray for you. So we're going to sit and we're going to listen And it may be a word of encouragement that you need to hear, a Bible verse that God stirs up in our hearts and we say, you know, I think maybe anyway that I'm supposed to say this to you. Does this mean anything to you? Does this resonate with you? It might might be a a word of rebuke, you know. It might might be that you come and and we pray for your foot because that's what you've asked us to do, but we also pray for your family or we pray for your ministry or we pray for a relationship that you have with somebody or something else. And so he said, all right, so here's the deal. We're, this is how we're going to, and he got right down to the place where it's like that he's going to invite us down moment, and everybody knew that. And all of a sudden, it's like he inter- he's interrupted. He's like, he stopped kind of awkwardly. And he said, you know what? Hang on a second. Before anybody comes forward, uh, I feel like I'm supposed to read this passage of scripture to you. And he said, I don't even know why. He said, honestly, it doesn't really fit with what we're doing, and it's not about prayer or anything like that. Um, But I just, I've felt like I'm supposed to do this. So I suspect, he said, I don't know this, that it's probably for one of you. In other words, this passage of Scripture is going to make sense, but only to one of you. So then he turned in his Bible to Exodus 14. And he's looking for it, you know, like he does, it's one of these verses, you know, he's kind of tracing his finger down the page trying to find it. He wasn't planning this out. There's no sticky note there going, read this, you know. And so finally he finds it. He comes to verse 13 and he reads this. It says, and Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you And you have only to be silent. Which, in my opinion, anyway, is the heart of this story that we're going to look at today as we continue our study of the book of Exodus. But in reality, like in that moment, for many moments leading up to it, for many moments since then, even now, uh, in many ways it was the heart of my story. Um, You know, in fact, when he said... It's in Exodus 14, and then he's looking for the verse. I I mean, I didn't do it, but I could have said, it starts at verse 13, like it was just so obvious, you know. He said, it's in Exodus 14, and I've never experienced this before. I literally started shaking. 
Like my arms were shaking. My, I'm like, you know, like I wasn't, you know, like this, but I mean, it was, I was like trembling in a way that I've never experienced before. And, you know, so my Presbyterianism tried to come to my rescue, you know, and it, <laughs> it, it, came, it came to me and it said, pull yourself together, man, you know, come on, what's the matter with you? And then I felt like the Lord said something to me. Just one word. Why? Why pull yourself together? Why do you need to be composed? Tom, why should you or any Christian anywhere, in any time, in any circumstance, ever feel the need to pretend to be something or someone other than who he or she really is? It's a denial of the gospel. The gospel comes to us and says, listen, you have value, you have worth, not because you have it all together in the eyes of everyone else, not because you have it all together in your own eyes. Good grief. The reality is we all know that we're all messed up. You have value because God so loved you that he gave the life of his one and only son to suffer and die in your place to pay the penalty for your sin and to rise again from the dead so that he might offer you everlasting and eternal life. And so that he can deliver you from sin in the end from death and then in moments like that and in moments like this and every other moment of life deliver you from the need to be somebody that you aren't. To pretend to be something that you're not. So when this guy said, okay, now's the prayer time, I like about tripped over myself trying to get down. That was the first one down and I was coming all the way from the back row and, uh, and not because I was spiritually superior to anybody there, far from it but because I knew that he had read that verse for me. I mean, the reality is I have been reading those passages, of, that passage of scripture, those verses, uh, pretty much every night since June when I wrote them down on a three by five card and added them to a stack of three by five cards that I read every single night before I go to bed in my own personal battle against anxiety. And I don't know how many of you guys struggle with anxiety. I suspect it's a lot of you, frankly. But I'll tell you, I know, you know in your head, when this is your issue, that objectively, okay, it's very different from having Pharaoh and his armies and his chariots bearing down on you. Got it. It's not the same. But subjectively, it feels exactly like that. It is not fun. It is not something you go looking for. And so when he read those verses, you know, I knew that he was reading them for me. And here's what I think they say. And they don't just say them to me. They're not my verses. I mean, I claim them, but they're not just mine. They were actually originally given to these people. So they're the show-offs in this equation. But they were recorded in the Bible for all the rest of us. They belong to the people of God. These verses are coming to us and they're going, hey, number one, God knows who you are. Number two, God knows where you are. Three, he knows what your battle is, whatever it may be. For it's not just your battle. It's His. The Lord fights for you. And here's the deal, number five. Either in this life or in the next, He is going to finally, fully, completely, and eternally deliver you from whatever it is. And I'm just going to add something to all of that. I think that if we would abandon our pride and humble ourselves before the Lord and confess to Him and to one another who and what we really are, he'd deliver us a lot more frequently in this life than what we experience. All of our prideful posturing, guys, what does it do but deny us the benefits that humility brings when we come forward and just say, hey, you know what? Here's who I am. Here's my deal. 
pray for me. This is what I need. I need a word of encouragement. I need a word of rebuke. I, I need to be delivered. I need whatever it is that I need. I'm a person who has needs that only God can meet. So thus far in our study in the book of Exodus, we have watched together as God through a series of plagues of late has delivered in quite dramatic fashion his people, the Israelites, from Pharaoh and from Egypt where they have been held in slavery for 430 years. And then, as this next graphic will show you, God takes them out of the land of Egypt and he begins to lead them up toward the land of Canaan. Why? Because that's the promised land. That's where he has said he is going to take them. So thus far, everybody's on board. That's what the Israelites expect. That's what Pharaoh expects. And yet, as you can see in the graphic, he stops them, has them pivot, and stunningly brings them back into the land of Egypt where he pins them up against the Red Sea. Face the Red Sea, it says. That's the direction they're facing. And from the perspective of Pharaoh, man, he has just led them into a trap, which is exactly what God wants Pharaoh to think. God says to Moses, look, here's the deal. I know it looks like I'm taking you around this crazy circuitous route, you know, and you must be wondering what in the world is going on. I'm sure the people are starting to grumble like, hey, bud, you know, the, the promised land's that way. You know, can you go back and talk to God some more about that? Because it's that way, you know. But I know exactly what I'm doing, Moses. So here's the deal. I'm going to bring you back into the land of Egypt. I'm going to take you and I'm going to stick you right up against the Red Sea where there is no escape for you. And I'm using you as bait. You're the worm on the hook. And I'm going to draw Pharaoh out for one final confrontation and I will do battle against Pharaoh and it is a battle that I, God, am going to win. But here's the deal. Even though Moses knows that, even though presumably at least Moses has shared that with the people, I mean, I, I certainly would have shared that. You know, everybody's complaining, hey guys, seriously, the Lord said to do this. I promise, it's not me, you know. Even though they know this, when Pharaoh and the chariots arrive, they freak out. Why do they freak out? Because they're real people just like me. They're just like you. Hey, you know what? Every Christian everywhere knows or at least ought to know that either in this life or in the next life, God is going to fully, completely, finally, and eternally deliver us from all of our battles. Like we got that and we still freak out. Why do we freak out? Because we want him to do it in this life and we're not so sure which one he's going to choose. And even if he does it in this life, we have some pretty definite opinions as to exactly when. Like yesterday would have been good, but okay, I'll take right now that we want him to do it and exactly how he's going to do it. Can you do it in a not very painful kind of a way? What is the bottom line on this? We don't trust God to behave in the way that we would behave if we were God. And that's fair because he often does not. But what's the source of our fear? Lack of trust in God. So we freak out like them. And what do we do? We do the same thing. We cry out to God in anger and bitterness and resentment and fear and panic and despair. All of these things. And then we accuse God and then we start accusing other people too. And in their case, they accuse Moses who very calmly gives them my verses and yours, which again, because I love them, say this. It says, and Moses said to the people, Fear not, and stand firm, 
and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will work for you today for the Egyptians whom you see today. You shall never see again, and not because they're going to destroy you, but because the Lord will fight for you. Here's your role. You have only to be silent. And by the way, what's the difference between Moses here, who's very calm, and the people of Israel who are very much not calm? Because it isn't natural courage. In other words, one of the things that's been most striking to me in this whole study of the book of Exodus is I've been looking at this towering titanic figure of Moses, and I think we can just all agree, this man is like epically heroic, and nevertheless, all the way up until around the last couple of plagues at least, this guy is a total coward. I'm shocked. I'm overwhelmed by his weakness. I'm weaker than he is, but at times I'm saying, buck up, bud. You know, like, come on, man. What's the problem with you? Now he's different. Why? What's the difference? He trusts the Lord. He's grown. The Israelites, not nearly as much as he does. And what is the key to developing trust with anyone, but we're talking about with God now? The key to trust is relationship. And so here's how God does not work. He doesn't come to me and he doesn't come to you and say, hey, you know what, why don't we sit down at a negotiating table and let's figure out your life together. Tell me what you kind of want to see and accomplish and what you're going to feel good and safe with and all that stuff. And I'll give you some ideas, you know, that I've got from my perspective. And we can sort of negotiate a settlement. We'll both sign off since I got him altogether truthful. I will live up to my end of the bargain at least. And therefore, then we will design a life for you that works and that you feel safe in and in which you can trust me because you know what it's going to be in advance and I'm going to keep my word. He doesn't do that. He comes to me and he comes to you in all the uncertainty of life. And it is, from our limited perspective, a very uncertain thing. And he says, listen, here's what I'm going to give you. Uh, I'm going to give you me. Walk with me. Come to know me. Speak with me, move with me, be empowered by me. Come to sense and understand my heart, who I really am. Because as you grow in relationship with me, correspondingly then, you will grow in trust for me and in the way that I sovereignly and providentially govern over your life. And you'll learn to trust me even when it feels like Pharaoh and his chariots are, are coming down on you and, frankly, everyone you love. And so Moses, who has the relationship and therefore the trust, gives to them my verses and yours. And then it's brilliant in verse 15. We read that the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to move forward. Now, again, he, he has them camped up against the sea, like facing the sea. That's the way the encampment is laid out. And you say, well, move forward. Like, where? You know, like, because it's not move forward toward Pharaoh. I think we got that. The Lord's going to fight. The battle is the Lord's. He's got that. And you want us to go... I don't know. Like, I got nothing. I mean, and it sounds like a rebuke, doesn't it? Like the Lord says to Moses, why do you cry to me? It's like he's coming to him and going, come on, man, are you serious? And I think there's a sense in which he is. I think he's coming to Moses and going, are, are you not the same guy who, who I did like the 10 plagues with? 
Because like we just lived through a lot of stuff together. You should know me well enough, Moses, I think he's saying, to anticipate my next move. To know, because you know me so well, exactly what I would have you to do and I would then empower. I think it works that way in relationship. You know, you were probably raised in a home. I was raised in a home. I have great parents. Very, very thankful for them. And being raised in their home, what did I learn? I learned everything about them. Really, like I know what they like, what they don't like, what their passions are and aren't, what their values are and aren't. I know exactly when they like things done. I know exactly how they like things done. Like at some point, every kid is without excuse. Would you agree with that? I mean, it's just the case. I mean, there are unique circumstances where maybe you call them up and ask their advice, but most of the time, you know exactly what they would have you do. Why do you know that? Because you know them. Now, it doesn't mean you do it. But you're not wondering what they would have had you do when you don't. Grow in relationship with the Lord. Come to trust Him. You'll begin to anticipate what he would have you do because you know his heart. So Moses, he says, don't, don't cry to me. Tell the people of Israel, move forward. Good grief, man. Lift up your staff. Stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it so that the people of Israel may go through the sea on what? Because it's the signature of God. On dry ground. And then after that, here's what I'm going to do. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after the people of Israel into the sea and between the walls of water. And I will gain glory over Pharaoh and all of his host and chariots and his horsemen. Nobody gets left out. And the Egyptians shall then know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horses. And what follows next is also brilliant because what it does is it reenacts the first three days of creation that you find in the first couple of pages of the Bible. Now, why does God do that? He's revealing himself even through by means of his deliverance. He's saying, guys, look at the way that I'm delivering you because it's going to tell you some things about me. And I want you to grow in a relationship with me. And he does that with Jesus too, does he not? And you wonder, is, is God proud or is he humble? I, I'm sorry, but, but becoming one of us answers that. Is God loving or is he just angry and hateful? Being crucified in our place settles that. Is he wise or not? Well, employing his wisdom in our lives speaks directly to that even by the way that he delivers us, he's wooing us. You see, he's calling us. He's saying, hey, I want you to know my heart. I want you to know me. And so then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud by which God had been leading his people around in the wilderness moved from before them and stood behind them coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel, and there was the cloud and the darkness, and what? And it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. And I think what that means is that it was dark on the Egyptian side, and it was really light on the Israeli side, even though it was nighttime. What is that? It's light coming out of darkness. Well, what's the first day of creation? The Lord God says, let there be light and there is light. And what does he do? He divides the light from the darkness. He calls the one day and the other night. He's going, I'm this God. This is, this is who I am. 
And then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night, thus dividing the waters on the left, if you will, from the waters on the right, and creating this path in the middle. Well, what does God do on the second day of creation? It says that he divides the waters above from the waters below. It's the same thing. Different direction, but it's the same thing. And God made the sea The dry land, which corresponds to the third day of creation in which God brings forth the dry land from the water is the idea, okay? And the waters were divided and the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and a wall to them on their left hand. And I have no doubt that all but about two of them, okay, went through going, guys, we need to run. Like these things are gonna crash down on us, right? Like we're gonna die any second. We're gonna die, we're gonna die, we're gonna die, we're gonna die. Can you move a little faster? Like two guys that everybody wanted to punch were like, this is awesome. Look at God, you know, and he's gonna save us. And thus proving, I think, that it's not the quantity of our faith that saves us. It's not the quality of our faith that saves us. It's the object of our faith. It's who our faith is in that saves us. My favorite little verses in the New Testament is when that man says, oh Lord, I believe. And then what does he say? Help my unbelief. That's helpful. Thank you for that. That's really good stuff. Verse 23, we read that the Egyptians, who have clearly lost their minds at this point, There's an old statement that says, whom the gods would destroy, they would first make mad. In other words, they would make them crazy. These guys are crazy. They pursued the Israelites and they went after them, in after them, into the midst of the sea. All Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. Again, nobody left out. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down upon the Egyptian forces and he threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians who, you know, I mean, were used to driving the chariots normally realized this is not normal. They recognize what's going on. And so they said, let us flee from before Israel for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. And the Lord said to Moses, who was likely the last Israelite to make it safely through and to hit the beach on the other side. Stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, upon their horsemen, no one left out. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, which means that he's now, if you think about it, he's made it through. He's stretching out his hand toward Pharaoh, toward the oncoming chariot is the idea. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, into the deluge, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. And we read that of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. It's remarkable. What's interesting is we don't just find this story uh, in the Bible, there's a series actually of three steles. So a stele is a, it's like a stone monument. Sometimes words and statements and stories would be inscribed in them, but oftentimes it's like pictures of events are just inscribed in them. They were found in a place called Mycenae, which was a um, kind of a vital trading partner with the Egyptians. And they actually date back to right around this time. And I'll show them to you. And there's the first one, and this is probably not all that helpful for you, but you can see a chariot, you can see a horse. What's harder to see is this guy right here. 
But it's a guy and he's got his staff and he's pointing at the oncoming chariot and horse. This is water and this is water. So where are they? They're coming through the sea. Look at the next one. The next one, again, chariot, horse, water, water coming in, water coming in. Here's your man. This time he's got a staff. He's facing this direction now. So it's like he's leaving the chariot guy behind. And then in the third one, which is unfortunately missing a big chunk, but you see water. And then here it's just chaos. You see men, horses, stuff like that, all thrown into chaos as their deluge is the idea by the water, which is actually what the Bible says happened to the Egyptians. The Egyptians who incidentally had previously taken the Israelite male children, the babies born, and thrown them into water. You see? They threw the Israelite children into water. They are thrown into water. It's justice. The Israelis would not have looked at this having experienced that and called it harsh. So the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a, water to, or a wall rather to them on their right hand and on their left. And thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore, which means they made it right up to them before the walls collapsed on them and wiped them out. And Israel saw the great power that the Lord had used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. And they also then no doubt collected up all the weaponry and whatnot that washed up there on the side of the, the seashore. Because here's how it works in war. To the victors go the spoils. Except here and in the gospel with us. Because here and in the gospel with us, it's to the victors' people go the spoils. God's the victor. He's the one who fights. He's the champion. God in Christ defeats sin and death for us that we might know forgiveness, eternal life, that we might find an identity that is unshakable and realize that we are valuable because of Him, thus freeing us to be authentic with ourselves, with Him, and with anybody else, with anybody else as well. And the challenge for us is to grow in relationship with him until we learn to trust him, even when it feels like Pharaoh and his chariots are bearing down on us. Okay? So at the conference then, I went forward, beat everybody there. I think it was a little jarring. <laughs> this guy came forward. He goes, man, you sure knew why you wanted to come down. So, you know, and his name is Michael. Great guy. And so I prayed with Michael and I told him, I said, those verses were for me. And I just told him what was going on. And Explain the whole situation to him. And then he prayed for me. And he said, you know, Tom, he said, I, I think in light of what you've shared with me, I think what the Lord would have you to know is that God knows who you are. He knows where you are. That was easy. He just called me out. He knows what you're going through. It's not your battle to fight. It's his. And more than that, he's going to deliver you either in this life or in the next. So I think your challenge is to trust him in this. Give it to him every day and move forward. In fact, it was beautiful. He said to me, you need to know, and another passage came to his mind from Matthew 10, verse 30. He said, God's watch over you, God's care for you is so careful that even the, the hairs on your head are numbered by 
him. So what is your challenge? What's your battle? Because the deal is, that's not just a message for me. It's a message for you. And I think what the Lord would have you to do is swallow your pride, frankly, own this battle, and bring it to him. And bring it to some Christian brothers and sisters who can pray for you, who can speak God's word to you, who can walk together with you and get you help if that's what you need, who can be a resource, an instrument in his hand to fight the battle. God will fight that for you. So don't keep it to yourself. Okay? All right, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that you did not leave us to fight anything on our own. We are overwhelmed with so many things. Lord, you have come to rescue us in the person of Jesus Christ. And we are so very thankful for that. We are thankful that there is one who spoke the worlds into being and yet who speaks into our hearts life and peace, healing, deliverance, who has entered into time and space as one of us to take upon himself our burdens as Ryan shared, all of our sin, all of our stuff, and put it to death in his own person that we might instead be clothed in a garment uh, that we have not earned and we do not deserve and yet is authentically ours through faith in him, the garment of his perfections, that when you look at us, you see the perfections of Jesus because of all he's done for us. Lord, let us find our identity in that, our safety in that, our security in that, our salvation in that, our deliverance in that, our hope in that, our joy in that, our life in that. And let us share that life with others. I praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.